Want to hear some deep expert knowledge on how to step up your retail game for women? Our guest today will be dropping some insights that you do not want to miss. Tell me, boy, you make me so bored. You need to walk the other way. I tell you once more. Welcome back to Women Leading in Cannabis, where we go deep and get real with the pioneering women shaping today's cannabis industry. You can find us on the PodConnects Network, on iTunes, Spotify, and Pandora. If you like what you hear, subscribe to Women Leading in Cannabis. I'm your host, Kira Reed. I'm here today with Krista Ramey, co-founder of Vitrina, experts in building successful cannabis retail stores and customer journeys. Welcome to the show, Krista. Thanks. I'm so happy to be here. Krista is an innovative, passionate business owner who drives top-line growth and profitability through unique business modeling within the cannabis retail space. The Vitrina Group is an expert in managing cross-functional teams and integrating resources across organizations to help clients achieve business-wide initiatives, brand consistency, and predicted outcomes. Krista has a background in academic fashion and a passion for teaching, coaching, and training. She lectures at, on the business of cannabis at the Lake Superior State University. She has opened and worked with more than 30 global retail stores before getting into cannabis. All right, so Krista, you have a very interesting how it all started in cannabis story. So let's start there. Tell us how you went from traditional retail to cannabis. There's, there's really two parts of this story. And I think when um, we jumped into cannabis with Vitrine Group, it was a little bit of my personal experience as well as an opportunity in going into a store. So um, I had experienced a brain injury and was trying to find a solution to deal with, with headaches and migraines. And that led me down this path to CBD. And so I started using CBD oil um, to help manage that and kind of wean wheeze my way away from pharmaceuticals. And in doing that simultaneously at the same time, uh, recreational stores in Canada opened up. And specifically in Toronto, I walked into a store and was just like, ah, there's so much going on here. And we could be driving a much better in-store customer experience that would make our customers feel more confident in the products that they're purchasing. But we're just missing the mark. And so it was with that that I came back to the team at Vitrine. I was like, you know what? I think that there's an opportunity for us to work with cannabis retailers. And I'm not sure exactly what that's going to look like, but um, let's see what happens. And so that was almost four years ago. And we have been working in the cannabis industry ever since. Congratulations. Thank you. So I'm really curious to dig into the retail environment for women. Um, I wanted to start a woman-focused dispensary about five years ago. It was a place to get away from what we have all come to kind of expect from dispensaries, obnoxiously loud music, bud tenders are, who are in a hurry to just race you through the process, um, no real time or care 
given to the customers. And, it, you know, of all people that are in there, it's really the most offensive to women. It's almost like they built it to push us out the door instead of inviting us in. And when I was working on build, getting my dispensary, there was a lot of interest in inviting women in. And it's kind of been pushed aside, I've noticed, in the California market. That that idea is just kind of nobody cares anymore. And even though women have so much of the purchasing power in their pockets, over 80%, why is retail and cannabis still so focused on the 20-year-old guy that buys the pre-roll? I think it's really layered. If we gotta go, we have to kind of go back in where this is. And if we look at the patterns in um, how people were purchasing cannabis, there is a, a lack of women being active in that space outside of kind of traditional brick and mortar stores, right? Like oftentimes um, we would be at a party and there would potentially be cannabis around and, and it might not have been us making the initial purchase. That has translated a little bit into the rec space as well. Um, but what potentially even becomes deeper in this is how stigmatized the stores are and what we have done from a physical um, brick and mortar presence and the way that the stores are constructed to be approachable. I'll use an example and it's like anywhere where we have to put up window coverings where you can't see into the store makes an environment where we're walking into something that is the unknown. So there's lots of regulatory frameworks that require us to um, not expose products to customers who are out walking on the street. And so in that environment, we've just made the physical space really unapproachable. The other thing that we've done too is a lot of the brands and the packaging that has come um, to market has specifically targeted a demographic. We've, we've got multiple different stakeholders in cannabis. You've got your end user customer. You also have the people who are bringing and creating brands. And a lot of the time it's, who are we creating these brands for? And we all bring our own personal bias into that. And so that has influenced the products that have come to market. If we specifically look at maybe like Canada as an example and some U.S. states, um, we are starting now to see some differentiation. So what needs to happen is we essentially need to have um, products come to market and an industry come online and they're going to go after quote unquote, lowest hanging fruit with who the customer can be. Once we have then um, created enough products that saturate that market, we have to find other more targeted customers to be able to approach and make a product feel really good for them or a store feel really good for them. And so it is now when you start to see um, store density or product density that will also see diversity in what those will look like. The reality is, a store that feels really great to you is one that reflects your values back at you on the walls. And so something that even feels good for me might not feel good for you, but there are kind of basics that we should be thinking about within a retail environment, whether that be like for men or for women. Um, but I think based off of the way that um, women kind of grow up and the way that we're socialized, we have a tendency to be more aesthetically aware in an environment. And so, um, a physical brick and mortar cannabis store can particularly feel off-putting because of that. What do you think when you look at a store? Well, 
the first thing isn't about the look. The first thing is about the feel. And when I walk into a store and there is music that is blaring and obnoxious and thumping and screaming, I don't want to be in there. So the first thing that happens is, you know, my auditorily I'm assaulted. And then going up to the bud tender, you know, of course they don't know that I work in the industry. So they start talking to me like, I, I I can't tell you how many times this has happened. They talk to me like I don't know my ass from a hole in the ground when it comes to cannabis. And it's really infuriating. And they don't really want to take the time. They want to just move you along and make the next sale. So the whole experience, even though I'm in the industry, because you know locally I'm limited to what I have access to on a daily basis here, I don't really go and explore a whole lot of new products. I don't know what's new out there because I can't reach it on the shelves here because I don't want to go into the dispensary because it's it's an it's not a pleasant experience and I don't want to spend my money in there for somebody that's, you know, in a place that's not going to be welcoming me in. And this is something that I hear over and over and over again from women and it's you're right. It's you know, I was just in New York and there was a lot of focus on the stigma of cannabis in general, you know, who is the cannabis user. And I feel like we've really gotten past that a lot in the California market. I don't know what it's like up in Canada, but but you're right, though. The dispensary still has so much stigma attached to it because they're not actively doing anything to make it different. Yeah. And and what you're describing when you're talking about like the music and, and not necessarily just look, but also with feel is a concept called atmospherics. Um, and if you go into a really great bar and it's like the music is soft, but it feels lively and everything in there feels like it has texture because there's good materials and the glassware feels a particular way. That's all atmospheric. It's like how you feel about that environment is influenced by both the vis- visual and audible experience that you're having. So sometimes smell too. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. those types of conscious decisions um, often are lacked when we're trying to bring a cannabis store to like online. And one of the reasons why that is, is because we focus so much on the regulatory and compliance piece. So we spend our time getting ready to open focus and talking about regulations and compliance. And then we go to open the doors. And now it's kind of like a mad rush to get the store open and open to the public and generating revenue. Um, But we've totally missed this opportunity to make it feel great for the customer. Then once you're open, you're generating revenue. Now it's hard to close the doors and make a change. So it's really about planning this really early in the process. And it doesn't always have to be really, really expensive. um, Because that's another misconception is that to build a beautiful store, it has to be really expensive. But it is something that needs to be added into the planning process and and really saying, who do we want this store to feel good for? Because it can't feel good for everybody. Right. Um, so we've got to be targeted and start to differentiate who it's going to feel good for. Yeah. I went into a dispensary in the city over the weekend and it, you know, in the terms of the way it looked, it had gray carpet and white walls, but you know, the lights were really bright. So you didn't feel like it was this dark cavern. And there were just, there were two men there, one at the front and, you know, at security and, and one guy behind the counter but the music was a nice light jazz. They had a very chill attitude. So I actually stood there and talked with them for a while, explored some new products and bought more. 
So, you know, it's, it doesn't take a lot to make those changes. It's the subtle things, but I'll tell you the music is the number one thing that drives me out of a store. Or if I open the door and it's too loud and obnoxious, I won't even go in. And I, it's, it's, it's cause that's something that you can change immediately with no cost is the environment that you create with the sounds you put over the speaker. A really great environment is going to set the tone and the pace for the interaction. Like this is why we use Christmas music um, around the, the holidays. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. When you're holiday shopping and, and like that, like upbeat music, it, it's really to get people kind of like in and out and making decisions and to keep going because it's so busy. Um, what you're describing in your experience specifically in, in that space is they met your your um, level, meaning like your what you're bringing to the table, they were mirroring your behavior. So if you're like setting a slower pace, they're going to match your pace. That is what a really great butt tender will do. Um, but that doesn't happen or come really easily. That takes like a lot of practice and usually really great training and onboarding with a bartender team. And and that has also historically been not necessarily a focus when we're getting stores open. So there's kind of, you're describing two areas there that immediately impacted your overall customer experience that really were minimal investment to make happen. And do you see it coming to a point soon where the competition, the number of dispensaries open will, will create that demand where they will start to say, you know, maybe we really do need to take a look at these smaller things that we can change right here and now because we're losing customers. Or will it stay this environment, which is what I've experienced? Who cares? I'm selling weed all day long. Why do I need to do anything different? The weed sells. Yeah. Um, it's it's super interesting when we look at different markets um, and store density and what has happened. Weed doesn't just sell itself if we have store density. So if we have a lot of products in and a lot of stores open in a particular area, we now have to compete on other features and benefits. So like California, specifically where you are, your population is matched pretty well to your store count. Canada has the same population as California, only we have more than 3,000 stores. So we have a lot of stores. And so it is a really great example of a market where now um, retailers are looking at each other who are next door neighbors or down the block and saying, how am I going to show up differently than that group? And how could we potentially both win? Like one store might be good for one type of purchase and another store might be great for another type of product, for example. And so differentiation between assortment as well as look and feel of stores and who the target customer is, is where we're starting to get to. I really believe um, that that is going to continue to grow over the future, but in the short term, we'll continue to kind of see this like monolithic store that doesn't have a lot of um, traction necessarily with a particular group, but is more so created to feel good for a lot of people and not feel great for anybody, if that makes sense. So you work on the front lines with dispensaries, which statistically means you work with a lot of men. Yes. How do you navigate that space when you're bringing in knowledge that they need, but it's coming from a woman? What is your experience? Um, you know, I think as we have spent more time in this space, um, this has definitely 
become much easier. Um, I am now in an opportunity where we're getting to work with cross-functional teams. And so more women are showing up to the table than when we first entered the space for sure. Um, Yeah, like super, super exciting when we start to look at assortment and procurement teams and marketing teams and who is coming to the table there. It's incredibly cool. The, the pattern that I had seen historically kind of leading up to the last really year or so um, was a requirement for us to show up and be able to talk about the data and how the data performs in the industry. Ultimately, we have spent so far in our conversation talking about aesthetics and look and feel of a store that can be really hard for anybody to wrap their head around about what the profitable impacts of that can be in a business. So it's always been about being able to translate that also into the data and how we can track the improvement of a business through being able to change some of those other aspects of the business that don't necessarily um, have like a financial number or KPI associated with them. So what's interesting is uh, retailers historically have looked at it and said, you know what, I want my customer in and out as quickly as possible. And that's going to generate us the most revenue because we're helping the most number of customers. Whereas when we are able to slow the transaction down a little bit and help our customer until they're ready for the transaction to end, that is when we generate the most revenue. And so what ends up happening is we sell multiple units to a customer or we add impulse products as they're making their final decision Mm. of the um, cash register. And so as a customer, we are really comfortable with being in a store until we've already made our decision. And then we want to get out of there. And being able to navigate that conversation with the men in the industry has really been about being able to show up to the table with data and what that means for overall store profitability. It's always in the numbers, isn't it? It's it's because it's easier because there's some facts there. Um, it and I don't think that that necessarily is uniquely men. And um, it's anytime we're bringing like new information that potentially somebody hasn't thought about, we've got to be able to show up with facts. And that has been the numbers have been kind of what has been able to translate that for us. Well, you know the numbers tell the truth. You know, I, I, I'm, I advocate a lot for women, obviously in this space. And when I get pushback on, oh, you know, women don't need extra help, et cetera, et cetera. And I say, well, we're getting three to 8% of VC funding every year. That's not how I feel. That's just a fact. And the reality is that when you look at women as consumers, they have most of the buying power. And over and over again, it shows. I, I worked with a delivery service way back in the early days, and they would do customized visits, and they would spend an hour with their customers, but they would leave with anywhere between five and $800 to $1,000 in product sales for one hour. So, you know, it was incredibly efficient for them to take the time to do that, and it all was revealed in their receipts. So numbers can be really powerful if we're willing to look at them when they say things that we don't want to hear. (laughs) Yeah, I I think also in the data too, and this has been a problem in cannabis, um, we can't see a pattern in the data if it didn't exist in the first place, right? Like We can't measure something that wasn't showing up anyways. And so this starts to really um, be impactful when we look at historic, like, 
gender sales in a store or ethnographic measurements of performance is we haven't been able to normalize um, the experience of going into a cannabis store and break down some of the stigmas to be able to be more inclusive. And so if we were able to do that, the numbers would be skewed differently. So we have to look at the data and also say, what was the like opportunity risks um, associated with all of that data? Um, I would for if you were to look at the data um, for both Canada as well as California over the last three years, you might pull out and say, mm, there's nobody who wants a low THC product. Well, is it that there's nobody who wants a low THC product? Or is it that we haven't been able to get a low THC product to market and it feel particularly good to a certain customer base? I would say like Can has done a really interesting job of this. Um, as well as there's a couple pre-roll companies who are working on low dose THC um, pre-rolls. And, and what we can see in the data is like those, those sales are continuing to grow as we also see a new um, customer entering the space too, or a different use pattern around cannabis as well. So it's, um, we've got to look at the historical data and say, what could have what could be impacted or hidden in that data that we're not seeing and how can we bring something to market and better understand where the biggest opportunities are with it. Um, we're, we're still so early and the data sample so short still. So God, it's amazing. You know, when you've been in this five, six, 10 years, it doesn't feel like you're so new, but it is a good reminder that we are. And they're just how much data we have to pull from only goes back so far. Yeah. You know, like fashion and apparel and um, those industries right now are really starting to leverage AI technology um, to be able to predict pricing or skew assortment um, and or promotional calendars. And to do that well, you need a minimum of three years worth of data, like good quality data. And what does good quality data look like? Well, we don't even have that sample size in Canada yet because we have probably, I don't know, like a thousand additional products in the market now than when we legalized three, four years ago. So the quality of the data sample at the beginning versus now looks totally different. And so, and you take into, so you're, you're looking at the Canadian market, which is, you know, you're fully federally legal. So your variants are new products and, um, and, and new stores in the States, we're still opening up state to state. Are you taking our data into consideration against yours or are you just isolated to Canada? And when you look at the U S you know, what it's fascinating watching what's happening in New York because the interest the in the kinds of products there is different from California. The way they're approaching the industry is different. And how much does those variations impact the data? And how do you work with data when California is one way and New York is another way, but they're in the same industry and you're trying to get industry-wide data sets and patterns uh, pulled out of it? Yeah, like there are so many nuances. For example, we might look to California for product innovation, um, stream patterns, but like overall customer awareness of, and the culture around cannabis in on the eastern seaboard is so different. To your point, like New York is so much different. If I even look at um, sales in Ontario versus sales in Michigan, 
Michigan outperforms Ontario with flour. Ontario way outperforms Michigan with pre-rolls. And so you've got to be able to like look into the data and better understand why that is. Is it because there's not enough pre-rolls in the Michigan market? Or is it because there's literally a customer preference in, in Ontario? The fashion and apparel industry has always split what assortment looks like in California or on the West Coast versus on the East Coast. Customer buying behaviors are different. Seasonal impacts change this. Weather places people into very different positionality throughout the year. And so we could look at the trend in terms of overall sales in fashion and apparel, similar to cannabis, but to better understand the nuances on how to talk to a customer or what we need to do to reach a customer, we need to dial in specifically to that store. So uh, maybe like a Sephora in New York will carry a very different group and assortment of products than a Sephora in um, California, specifically maybe LA. And so to be able to do that, we've got to be taking a similar approach in cannabis too, because our customer fundamentally has different patterns in their life. Okay. So talking about trends, what trends are you seeing in women-owned products? How are they moving and what's most in demand? So we can look at it, A, as the category of women-owned products, but also, and probably have better data on what women are buying. Um, you know, we're looking at it from the perspective of, you know, we're on the side of the fence with the woman who's working in the industry, who has a business, not so much focused on the consumer, but that also drives what women are willing to make. So what does that landscape look like right now? Yeah. Like let's be, let's start and kind of get it out of the way and be like, simply putting a product in pink packaging, isn't going to kick it, you know? We, I think a trend in terms of products specifically for women is when we start to think about the experience that women have um, and products that are being brought to the market to be able to support that. So like um, products specifically focused to support with like menstrual pain um, or PMS, um, as those experiences are pretty unique. And so if we can generate the right products to match those customer needs, then we're really, really hitting something there. I think that there's also something from the social side, which is really interesting. And this pattern and narrative historically that has happened around the consumption of alcohol, specifically wine and women, um, and being able to offer an alternative to that. And so that's showing up in terms of beverages and edibles. So we usually see in terms of overall trends, large trends, Products that perform really well are really approachable um, in the way that they can be consumed, meaning that we reduce the number of tools for consumption. So like edibles, pre-rolls, beverages, that kind of group of products um, has a tendency to really perform well with, with women and with products that are specifically focused for the women, woman-based experience. That is really interesting. So what do we need to do to see more women-owned products on the shelves and women-owned dispensaries? What needs to happen in order to make that a reality? Because I, you know, with the competition, with enough competition, it can force that. But is there something else that we can do? Can we put pressure on our, on, on the dispensaries that are there to carry more products? What do we need to do to change this for us? Um, I think like as women in the industry, we need to be advocates for who our customers are 
um, and really identify and say like, you know what, we've got an entire customer base that we're not reaching well right now. And so why is that as a first step? But I think a second step is like we, to your point earlier about funding and access to funding, funding in this industry is hard enough to start a business um specifically a women-owned business and that shouldn't be the reason why there is an investment in a company but there are really great ideas with a lot of focus um and just because women are bringing it to the table doesn't mean that it should be eliminated and so um the ability to access and have conversations with the right people to be able to support and bring these products or these companies to market is super important. Um, what i what I think we have done is we've left a lot of room and and kind of continued this perpetuation of that this is a men man focused industry. Um, and it will always be that way if we don't work together in what this looks like and being able to champion the people that are doing really great things. And there are so many women doing really great things. We just need to elevate their voices for sure. So in looking at the data, learning everything you've learned, what has really surprised you most that you've learned about either women-focused products or women working in the industry? What piece of data like kind of blew your mind or took you by surprise? Um, the piece of data that blew my mind, which I, it was one of those moments where you're like, oh, I want to be surprised, but I'm not, was <laughs> when it, the, uh, I think it was MJ Biz, they came out with an article about how profitable the companies are that are being led by women in cannabis versus men. Um, and that I'm just like, <laughs> there's something in there and there's something about the way that um, women often participate in executive teams that are like ultimately really really focused that generate really great results from a profitability perspective when we're talking about a company and the performance so that blew my mind like it was that moment where you're like this shouldn't be this way um i'm glad that it is because i'm proud but it shouldn't be that way. And there still be so few women involved in executive teams. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If you look at any of the major companies that have taken millions in investor funding and then folded, I don't think any of them were run by women. No. Yeah. Even if you look at the way that the current MSO structures are and like who's participating in those companies, some of the better performing ones still have like a significant proportional representation of women on the board. Interesting. Okay. So as far as women own products for any of the women makers out there, what products are on the rise that there is not enough, uh, supply in the market to meet the demand? Um, it would depend, I guess, by market having options that look and feel different are really important. And so a lot of the time, the standout products are the products that start to sell out are ones that feature something totally different. Uh, I would say like edibles, for example, once we get into more complex flavors and like really interesting flavors, um, that is where we start to see some of those products shine. Um, so in terms of flavor diversity in areas of California, there's definitely gaps in offering there. Um, specifically, 
pre-rolls with like what the THC level is and potentially um, influences of terpenes to think about like the entourage effect, that would be a big opportunity as well. Um, For California, if we were to like look at Michigan beverages, um, big gap there. Uh, Anybody want to bring a beverage to Michigan? Let's have a chat. Um, And then if we were, for example, to look in Colorado, there is some opportunity for sure there again with beverage flavor uh, across Canada we see big opportunities with the nuances in gummy flavors or edible flavors as well. Interesting. And what about in the dispensary? Is there any data point that you've seen that you think women should know about who own these dispensaries that might be beneficial for them? Um, yeah, actually it's not specifically just women, but I think that, um, women want to be, loyal to a really great company if they're connected. And and I think that women-owned businesses have an opportunity with other women-owned businesses. So um, the average retail environment or dispensary sees the majority of their customers eight times in a year. If you were to ask the the dispensary owners for in most places, they would say like, oh, my customer shops every week or bi-weekly. Not the case. The average is eight. So if we want to increase our revenue, um, we either need to increase the amount of customers we have, increase the amount that they spend in store, or we could also increase the number of times that they visit. And so this should be some information that impacts the ability to communicate and like your promotional calendar and cadence and like what you're doing in terms of either email campaigns or text campaigns. So you could be really impactful for your business as a dispensary owner by being able to communicate um, and get your customer in the doors more than eight times a year. Well, I find in working with women, specifically women who own dispensaries, there's a lot more narrative around things that we're communicating with our customer that exists beyond just like discounts and markdowns. (laughs) So um, being able to like think about your customer experience Um, And what is relevant to the patterns of their life are opportunities to communicate directly with them. They want to hear about the new products that are coming into store. They want to see a brand that's featured by you because maybe they are also a women-owned brand. So it would be about thinking about the number of visits and then how you could integrate that into a promotional calendar to like really create touch points with your customers. Wow. That's such great advice. Thank you very much. No, I'm so happy to. There's all these like little gaps of understanding. And if we could just like close the the loop on some of those gaps, we could create some really great results in stores. I agree. I agree. Which is one of the reasons I wanted to have you on this call or have you um, on as an interview because I think there are a lot of small things, you know, I think we look at how do I make changes to my business it requires a massive investment, but you really don't need to. Looking through, combing through the data can really show you where you can fill in those holes and make changes. So, I mean, just simply working on getting your customer in more than eight times a year could be huge. Totally. And retail is one transaction at a time. If you want to make a change in a retail business, we can make a big lofty goal, but we have to break it down into really small, digestible, workable pieces. And so um, it's like really literally who's the customer that's in front of us and how do we leverage 
this to be the best moment for them. Because if they walk out of the store confident in the products that they purchased and in their decision making, we're much more likely to see them come back. And so I think we, I have a tendency to talk about kind of cannabis retail and the data and it sounds like really like we're missing the human aspect. No, retail is a human experience and our customers need to feel really good about what they're purchasing. And that is our best way for them to go and become promoters for our brand. And they tell all of their friends, that's, that's like unbelievable marketing and advertising dollars that you can never get back. And then um, also being able to, to really see them come back again, because they, they want to have a secondary experience and they, they want to tell you about how their first experience went. That's where you've like really hit the gold mine. So building a customer base and, and thinking about your dispensary, it should be like, how do we keep the customers that we have is the number one priority. And then how do we add new customers and then put them into like a retention plan is where you see the best results. Because honestly, getting new customers, customer acquisition is one of the most expensive uh, pieces of business that any business participates in. Totally. Like the cost of customer acquisition in different markets, it, it varies, but from the math that we've looked at in different markets, it's kind of anywhere between $300 and $1,000 to acquire a new customer. Oh. Yeah. Wow. And that's in the Canadian market. That would be like Canada or the US. There, there would be US markets that would be that high too. $300, for example, if your lifetime spend of a customer is going to be like anywhere between $400 and $1,000, like a $300 investment, they don't even become a profitable customer until year two, pretty much. So we, we just underestimate what it looks like to acquire a new customer. So the the retail owner who's thinking, if I can get, you know, 5,000 pre-rolls sold to 5,000 customers, I'm doing good, when really they should be thinking, I'll get 1,000 products sold between five or six customers. That's the game. That's the that's the that's the most profitable game, and the most like uh, predictable too. So again, depending on the market, um, a sustainable store is usually going to be built off of anywhere between five thousand and ten thousand customers. And so once you've got them, it's like, what's the reoccurring purchasing rate of those customers? How much are they spending? Um, all of that will influence your ability to be predictable or not. And so um, like driving a customer base is going to, should be the number one priority. If you're opening a new store, or if you currently have a store and, and are not already doing that, like um, that's going to be your way to know and measure, are you on track? Are you off track? Uh, what do you need to do to be able to drive the profitability of the oh, business? So fascinating, Krista. I could seriously talk to you all day about this. You are so knowledgeable. I really Really appreciate you sharing everything with us. Uh, before we wrap up, where can women reach you who want to know more about you and Vitrina? Yeah, um, we're pretty active on LinkedIn. We like to share tips and tricks on Tuesdays about pricing compression. So you can find me on LinkedIn um, or shoot me an email. My email is Krista at vitrinagroup.com. Awesome. Thank you so much. Ladies, thank you for tuning in. If you haven't yet joined the Women Employed in Cannabis community, go to weicwomen.com. There you'll find all the details on membership for women working in cannabis. And if you've liked what you've heard here today, we will be hosting a cannabis career coaching session with Oaksterdam University next month 
on July 13th, Wednesday, July 13th at 1 p.m. It's a virtual cannabis career coaching event on retail. So if you are interested in what you've heard, please join us there as well for an hour and a half discussion where you can actually join and ask questions. WEIC is a community that provides networking, cannabis career coaching, and resources and support to women working in cannabis in the U.S., Canada, and around the world where there's an interest in cannabis legalization. We welcome women who are currently working in cannabis or curious about taking a leap into the industry. Consider becoming a WEIC woman member or business member for benefits and access across the network. And join us again for another conversation with women leading in cannabis. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. How do cannabis CEOs balance growth and optimization strategies? What is THCO, Delta 10, and CBNA, and why should you care about these minor cannabinoids? And why is an endocannabinoid system covered in medical school? Most people think they're up to date in trends in the cannabis industry, but they're about six weeks behind. Learn about what is truly next in the cannabis space by joining myself, Brian Fields, and Kellen Finney every week on the Dime Podcast and, of course, on PodConnects.